Welcome to The Rebuilders. I'm Sarah, and with my co-host Anna, we're on a mission to discover what it takes to rebuild something that isn't working. From businesses to lifestyles to relationships, each week we interview someone who has dug deep to turn around an aspect of their life or work. You're about to hear a very personal story packed with great lessons and insights. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe as we have a new and amazing story every week. Today, I'm speaking to someone who is buzzing with energy and can even talk me under the table. Faris Jacob, co-founder of Genius Deals, a creative consultancy, business owner, prolific tweeter, tech geek, and author of book Paid Attention, which has been called a new marketing philosophy for all time. Faris has rebuilt not just one aspect of his life, but almost all of it several times over, changing jobs, companies, and countries multiple times. In fact, before COVID, he and his wife and business partner, Rosie, had lived nomadically for several years with no home base and instead traveled wherever their life and work took them. For anyone who's experienced a feeling of restlessness, this is a fascinating story of a career and indeed a life spent moving towards the things that matter and away from those things that don't. He started by sharing how his understanding of what makes him happy has evolved throughout his career, particularly after having a lot of early career success. As I got older, and maybe not even got older, but when I realized that I had achieved what I thought I needed to achieve in some areas, as promised by everybody who's ever done very aggressive career laddering, it doesn't provide you with the solutions to any of your emotional problems that you thought it might, for etc. I think success now is much more variable for me. To me, the most important thing about owning my time is extremely valuable to me. Owning my time is something that I have bought at a massive cost and at huge risk. And it's why I'm probably not going to have children ever. It's why I don't enjoy working full time for employers, really, because my time is very valuable to me. I like it. So success for me is having freedom to choose where, when and how and what I work on. And how did this learning emerge that your time was the most important factor in your happiness? So I guess to get to the end first, the realisation and the slogan we've been playing with around this recently, make your life your life's work. That's what we say a lot now, because the idea of work-life balance over-emphasises the importance of work. <laughs> Life is far more important. People don't spend as much time thinking strategically about their lives as they do about their careers, which seems narrow to me. So this all, I think, stems from initially just not knowing what to do and also committing to things too much sometimes and building my life around them rather than vice versa and deciding that was challenging. So I started out without an idea of how I wanted to work. I never really grew up thinking I want to be a lawyer, I want to make a lot of money. That wasn't something that occurred to me. I grew up in a sort of relatively normal middle class household. My parents were both immigrants Neither of them had gone to university. So their existence and certain sort of references and understanding of how the middle class career ladder worked wasn't so obvious. They didn't really have that. So I didn't really know about it. And out of university, I'd done an English degree. Americans find such things so confusing because the whole point of a degree in America is to get a job. They're all heavily vocational now. And degrees are literally ranked based on the average salary people can expect after leaving that degree at that university. But despite coming out with an English degree, you had a lot of early success. So you're a big internet lover, even in the late 90s. And I think that led you to work at a management consultancy building startups that was also going swimmingly at the time. 
So I got a job, not really knowing what it's about. And within about six months, I had options from this consultancy that when it IPO'd in five years, based on their predictions, I would be a multimillionaire. And I'd basically already won the internet economy. And I wasn't really sure how, but my position was being an adult didn't seem that hard, frankly. I seemed to have worked it out in a few months. So great. Now, I went through a very small version of the dot-com boom. So there were lots of startups that I had equity in because of the incubator, and I had my options in the company. And then the dot-com crash happened in 2000, and my company basically vanished. Then you decided ultimately that you didn't want to wear a suit, and you started over. You started exploring writing, and I believe you worked as an intern at Maxim magazine. How did that suit you? I was 21 and full of vim, and I thought a lad's mag would be an excellent place for a young man to work. I was wrong about that. It was not good for me at all. I had massive immediate disagreements about all kinds of stuff. And so that happened. And then I was doing that for a while. And then eventually I realized that this wasn't going anywhere and that I was getting more and more frustrated and that I need things that make me think slightly differently. Like I'm not a political thinker or a social thinker as much as I am kind of an analytic thinker, perhaps. And so I went to the Milkround website for graduate jobs, primarily because I was looking for my brother to get a job. He graduated five, six years after me. And came across this media planning concept. So there was a big graduate recruitment drive for you know, an 18-month training program at one of the Omnicom media shops. And I applied to it because it said something like, it's the fusion of analytic and creative thinking. So I got into advertising via a graduate training at OMD. And once you started on that media agency path, and let's think this is sort of early 2000s, right? So things were becoming digital, but not fully digital in the way that they are now. How did you find yourself when you were in that job? Was it suiting you? Ultimately, what happened was I found, to be honest, the environment of the mega, mega media agencies to be quite beige, cubically, corporate, hierarchical, political, and so forth. And that's just the nature of large organizations. It's not that it was a bad or a good company. It was great. People were nice to me. It's just that it's inevitably a large system that likes doing things that large systems do. And I wanted to kick holes in stuff. And I'm also kind of flattering myself. I'm like, I don't think I'm a media person. I don't think I should be in this box. But then I don't think I should be in a creative box either. Huh. So what should I be? And then Naked kind of appeared on my horizon. And Naked seemed to solve all these problems for me from a brand positioning level. You talk quite a lot about boxes and you mentioned at the beginning that your parents are immigrants. To what extent do you think that plays into your finding yourself in environments where you feel like, I don't know, this isn't my box or sort of constantly trying to check what box am I fitting in? I think it works in both different ways, positively and negative. I think growing up in England, I present as white and English, right? My dad's Arabic, he's from Iraq, my mum's from New Zealand. Not that that's particularly relevant, but in terms of growing up in the UK, I didn't go to the football with my dad, nor did I like football, which sounds like it is a tiny part of your childhood, but it is not. Growing up in London at a boys' school and you don't care about football means that you already feel very strangely isolated from everybody, basically. But there was an inherent sense of being an expat in my own country from the very beginning, yes. I mean, my parents growing up there and having a community that's from there. So I always was in two worlds, yes. I also don't like being put in boxes for the same reason, I think. I think of it as limiting. I think of it as diminishing in some ways because I'm arrogant and think I can do anything. <laughs> so Naked was known at the time as being this amazing band of misfits. And I guess lots of people who felt they didn't fit in boxes in creative agencies. How did you find yourself fitting in when you went there? And what of it suited you? And what made you want to stay or not? It was glorious in a lot of different directions to me because... As he pointed out, Brilliant Misfits was their hiring approach. 
And everybody there was like an exile from different parts of the system. And I like understanding the whole system, not bits. While you're at Naked, you made one of the biggest rebuild moments, which was you packed up your life in the UK and you went to New York and you have never come back to the UK, really, have you? You're still, if not global based, then US based. You talked at the beginning about trying to make your life your life's work. Talk to me a bit more about that. So you moved country, although you were still in the same job, but how close were you then to exploring this idea of building the life that you wanted? In some ways completely and in some ways 0%, which will make sense hopefully. Somebody approached me from another agency. I went to New York. I did some interviews. They sort of offered me a job. I told my boss and they went, do you want to go to our office instead? I said, yeah. So My thinking was essentially, as I mentioned to you, like partially it was to do with my age. I was about to turn 30. And essentially about that age, it began to be clear that I had been single for a long time. A lot of my friends were beginning to have children. And the nature of my social life had begun to visibly change. So when the opportunity came up, I thought about it for a long time. I worried about it for a long time. Someone said the now classic piece of advice, you regret things you don't do more than the things you do. I think there's parameters to that. Obviously, sometimes you definitely regret the things you do a lot, like if you have a car accident, I imagine. But in general terms, I see the logic of that. And part of what I wanted was not to do the same thing somewhere else, but if I'm going to do the same thing somewhere else, to be somewhere else. And when you made that move and when you've made other moves, were you moving away from something or were you moving towards something? Both, I think. The punctuation points every five years make sense to me, at least. They traditionally work pretty well. But I was very happy in London. I was very much enjoying my kind of riotous, work hard, play hard existence. And that definitely served me well when I got to New York. But I was extremely lonely when I got to New York. I knew nobody and had to meet everybody from scratch and was forced to be the most extroverted version of myself that I've ever been before or since. I was quite a public person because I was on the, online a lot. I got a very big job quite quickly after getting to New York, which suddenly made me appear in the New York industry dialogue a lot, for better and worse, in lots of ways. So I had to be very comfortable in public in that sense. And also I didn't know anybody, so I needed to make friends. And so I used to go to a lot of industry events and met most of my friends still from industry events in tech, social advertising, media, and so on in the scene. I don't know if I was running away from anything in particular beyond kind of a sense of ennui that I've been doing a job for a long time. And was this all there is? Once I realized the world was out there, it's like beating on my door kind of thing. And you stayed in a big job in New York for a while. And then again, you sort of blew that up, basically, didn't you? You left and I think you burned a few bridges on the way. How would you describe that period when you chose to go? You chose to leave a big traditional corner office kind of agency job. I don't think I burned any bridges really, except with maybe my old CEO. But then he got done for embezzlement, didn't he? So it doesn't matter that much. I got recruited to be the chief digital officer of McCann Erickson, right? So I went from an agency, a very small number of people that had a weirdly global footprint to one of the biggest agencies in the world at their flagship office of nearly 3,000 people on 28 floors of a skyscraper. And I was on the board. And I was like, all right, cool. That sounds great. Let's do it. And then the thing that I didn't like about the big companies that got me into Naked became pretty quickly true. I thought if I was at the top, then people would have to do what I said. (laughs) and that the system would be tolerable because I was at the top of it. How, how <laughs> did that learning curve work out? Real fast, like unbelievably quickly. And I was just like, oh, I see. I did the chief digital officer job way too early, and then I went into a chief innovation officer job, and that suddenly became a thing. 
So the learning curve is extreme, right? You can't make anyone do anything unless you control their bonus, essentially, is what I learned. <laughs> in an agency, everyone simply defaults into who controls their bonus, who protects them, especially in large agencies. Creatives will be protected by their creative director or their chief creative officer or not. And it is known. It's bizarre and labyrinthine and medieval in how many weird pacts and fealties and loyalties are brokered and stuff. And the whole thing was interesting. Also, I was 30. Everyone else on the board was 50 over. So there's a 20-year gap between us. And that was strange. Every Monday morning, I go to the board meeting and everyone's like, hello. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> and then they say things and I'm like, I don't think that's good. And they just look at me like, should you be here, really? <laughs> I'm supposed to be there. I know it. it's in my calendar, but everyone is like, what's going on? Why is this happening to us? You know, it was very funny. You talked about yourself during this conversation as sort of a bit of scrappy and a bit crazy. Eventually, and now, you work for yourself, right? You run a business, a very successful business with your wife, Rosie, called Genius Deals. We've talked about boxes and people trying to put you in boxes. Was it inevitable, do you think, for someone with your, as you put it, crazy, scrappy nature to end up self-employed or running your own business? I don't know about inevitability. A lot of my tendencies very strongly veer towards it. However, I never considered it for a single second ever. Never once. Even when we started going out on our own, didn't consider it. Rosie considered it. And it's only because Rosie can run a business and is very comfortable in that, that it works at all. We have very clear divisions mostly about who likes doing what, and it works really well for us as a duo. I would not do it on my own, nor do I think I could do it on my own, at least not like this. Because I need external validation, like lots of precocious, annoying children that don't grow up properly. When I said, okay, I do advertising now, it went all in, right? I did a IPA diploma. I read everything about it, everything. I'm a geek. That's how I understand how to do stuff. I learn everything I can about it. And now I know more about anything in a meeting than anybody else does. I feel comfortable. So planning was obviously an ideal place for me. But like, I went wholeheartedly in and I was like, if I'm going to do this, I will be successful at it. I will be good and I will get to the top. But that's essentially what I did. I got to the top weirdly fast because of a weird juncture in time where these companies were terrified of the internet and I to them represented it in some useful way that they could deploy. When I told them I couldn't make websites or anything, immediately things began to break down. <laughs> do, you, do you do banners? I'm like, oh no, not at all. What does everyone think I do here? Yeah. The actual job was technology strategist. I thought it was baked in. But anyway, no one knew. So there were lots of weird moments where this happened. Like a lot of people, I need that validation to some degree, which put me out a lot. I put myself into public a great deal which initiated lots of backlashes, right? Because I appeared out of nowhere and who are like, why is this guy on stage all the time now? Who is he and why is that happening? And why is his hair funny? And why is he British? Oh, he's one of those dudes, right? I get it. And that was a moment where those dudes became out of favour as well. With all these changes that you've made, what have you learned about yourself along the way? I think one of the biggest tricks that working in large systems your whole career teaches you is that systems are required in order to generate money. There is an inherent sense, if you are a operational part of a system, that the system, inherently the firm, aggregates all your skills together to create a viable product for the market. That's sort of an intuitive sense of what we do. And that had baked into my belief, right? I cannot run a company, I cannot sell, market, provide, and all that stuff. That's something I can't do, right? And that's what it teaches you. And that was fundamentally untrue. Both individually what you do is economically valuable it must be otherwise they wouldn't be paying you so that was worth understanding i think everyone should get that that you individually can create economic value and you don't need to be a large corporation working with our clients are all large corporations primarily right it's a very imbalanced negotiation but we have the ability to say no so our negotiations with our very large global cpg clients or large global agencies have always ultimately gone in our favor or we just walk away 
And we can do that because we don't have overheads and stuff like that. So we are in a position of extreme strength that way. I think I've learned a lot about the need to work on my life. And that sounds facile because I hit 40 a couple of years ago. And I think everyone begins to realize they're going to die at 40 and panic about it and worry about their health a lot and how they spent the last 20 years living quite advertising lives and how that maybe isn't the best. But I think work disguises a lot of stuff because in New York, right, my board meetings were on Sunday. I usually was in meetings between 10 and 5 every day. And then I had to try and do work, not on Sundays and not during 10 and 5 every day. Because I didn't really have a department either. Like, it was all very complicated. So my time has vanished. I had zero time. And New York is all about having no time. In New York, if you're not busy, people assume that you're going to be leaving soon. And when people ask you how you are, if you don't say busy, it is weird. It freaks people out. And that culture is super unhealthy. The entire culture is of competitive presenteeism. Because the companies are so big, no one knows what anyone else is doing. So the closest proxy management can use is physical presence. So people spend way too long in the office for no reason all the time because they're frightened because of employment at will means they can be laid off for no reason with no protections and no money. So everyone's in a constant battle for their job. Everyone's terrified and everyone just pretends they're in the office all the time. And it happens with emails too. If they're sending emails all weekend, the board would have ongoing arguments all weekend over email to prove they're all working all weekends. And I'm like, this is extremely tiresome. Nothing we do is important enough for this. So we're recording the time of COVID, you're in the US at the minute, and I'm in the UK, and unemployment rates are high and will keep going higher. Now, there will be many people out there who are either in a big company, but think they might lose their job, or just aren't enjoying it and want to go, but are worried and concerned because there are financial issues, or there may be people who've already lost their job. Like you say, I've probably internalized that thought that actually you need to be part of a big system in order to monetize your skills. What sort of advice do you have for people who are either voluntarily or involuntarily looking at having to or wanting to rebuild their careers right now, maybe not by going back into a big organization? This is not just a now problem. It's been a historical problem, especially in advertising, right? Advertising agencies, there's like maybe 5% over the age of 50 in terms of employees. So at some point in most agency careers, you stop working for an agency in some fashion. That's going to happen to 95% of people who work in advertising agencies. That's just how the maths work. And you noticed it when we were kind of five years in, 10 years in, five years in, there was a bunch of florists and yoga teachers that suddenly appeared. One agency, 72 and Sunny in Amsterdam, actually had a yoga teacher come into the office every week because it became a running joke. Everyone kept leaving to go be yoga teachers because everyone is trying to manage absurd levels of stress that shouldn't be this high because advertising is absurdly stressful for how unimportant it is. And that discordance messes with your head eventually for a lot of people. So there has always been people that need to have exit strategies. What I like about my job now is I don't have an exit strategy. I just do different things and it's still me doing them. I just do different things when clients say, can you do this? I'm like, I think we can. All right. Yeah, that kind of stuff. The beginning part is believe that you have economic value. That's crucially important. The second part of it is you either need to get good at marketing and finance and stuff like that, or you need someone that does. The first few jobs I did, I didn't have contracts. And then my Brazilian client didn't want to pay me. My Brazilian client, Petrobras, the now highly corrupt petrochemical monopoly in Brazil decided it couldn't afford my workshop fee. And I'm like, what? Am I going to sue Petrobras? Ogilvy said famously, if you can't promote yourself, what hope do you have promoting your clients? Which is obviously true. If you cannot market your own skills and yourself, however that means, by building awareness and doing the things that marketing seems to be good at, why should we believe you're good at it for your clients? It's a relatively logical aphorism, but it's not entirely the case because the problem is people go, ah, I watched Gary Vee 
And all credit to him, he seems to have done something very well and made a lot of money somehow, magic. But the point being is that people forget that you can't just self-promote. You've got to have a thing you can sell, which is extremely high margin, which has value, right? You can't just put videos on LinkedIn and write really contrarian Twitter posts and argue with people a lot and think that's going to bring you a business unless you have a thing people also want to sell that's related to that. And so that was part of it. Productizing that was something we had to work out. First of all, we saw that speakers at events were mostly bad. So we then said, okay, we're going to insist on charging, not only being good, but we insist on charging. We don't do it for free. It's a product. And you have to take it seriously enough to pay us and we'll take it seriously. And so we carved out a business out of what wasn't a business for us anyway. So over time, you obviously have with Rosie worked out what is that saleable high margin product that you guys can generate together. Just coming right back to the start, you talked about making your life your life's work. How have you worked on understanding the life bit of it? You discovered that owning your time is crucial for you. What advice do you have for people who are trying to figure that bit of it out? Not just thinking about the career and what's saleable about themselves, but how do people find that blend, that balance? I don't know. How do you describe it? I think it's really hard to know what you want. I think Seneca said the hardest thing to know is what you want. One of the things that we use as a sort of little guiding point of view is by a children's artist called Dallas Clayton. Dallas Clayton has this little bit of art that he reproduces in lots of different ways. And it says, make a list of the things you love, make a list of the things you do every day, compare, and then adjust accordingly. What's most important to me? Traveling, speaking on stages, something I love doing, audiences I love, thinking about advertising in kind of abstractive ways that can be applied broadly to many people's situations rather than specifically to a particular problem, although we do that as well. It's finding these bits, but the life thing If travel's important to me, I structured my life around it. Community, it turned out, was something that was important to us that we didn't know we missed. So this was after a few years, right? We were like lonely. And I was like, what do I mean by that? What do I feel by that? We meet people all over the world and we have very nice time with them. And sometimes they become friends. And every week we're in a different place. It's cool, but it began to be aware to us that what was lacking was a sense of our friends knowing each other our sense of a community of people who knew each other that we were part of, except for the advertising one as a distributed kind of network. And so we started putting a lot of effort into our own projects, which is bringing people together twice a year normally, like 30 people at these places that we have access to, one in Mexico or in the mountains in Nashville, and putting effort into building an event that we get our friends to want to come to from all over the world by making it good. So you actively started to build out those areas which you had diagnosed or discovered weren't there. Yes. And it was only when you have time that you really get to think about this. When I was working, I didn't have time to manage my health or my brain, but I was young and I was used to working all of the time. Now, managing my health and my brain are a big part of what I'm trying to spend time doing, I guess. I just plowed on through for a long time. And then when I stopped and had some time to myself, I had a lot of re- thinking to do but it is really hard right it's hard to know what you want but it's not hard to know what you like doing that's different I like speaking on stages and that was a part of my ad job I really loved and I was like can that be a job or a bit of a job that's the other thing about starting out on your own which is being very open to multiple revenue streams we do give brand advice and brand consulting and business consulting with agencies and to brands to some degree and we almost refuse to clearly define our proposition which I think is totally fine when there's just a couple of you with a network of associates, because it's just us that you're getting, and it's always going to be us. And people know us for certain things, but they're like, can you do this? And we're like, yeah, maybe. So we don't need to define ourselves too clearly, and we have different 
products and stuff, which is important because let's say half of our business and our entire travel schedule is based on international speaking events, half our business in volume and value and all of our life. So in February this year, we had until October planned out with corporate speaking, with Snapchat, Casper, Facebook, with Coca-Cola, we had gigs in Australia and India. So we had basically mapped out the whole year, both in terms of where we were going to be living and spending time and working and all that just overnight stopped. So we had to really think again about this year. My initial response was to go, this year's off, I'm turning it off. It's just not going to work. The kind of work I want to do is not possible. And that makes me angry. And I was like, fine, we'll take a year off. No problem. But then obviously taking a year off during a pandemic is a waste of time because (laughs) there's no way you can go or do. So the reason to take a sabbatical gap year is turned upside down. So we have done a couple of things and it took some time to rebuild our thinking on this. So because we're open to opportunities and we're open to different projects, we like learning and testing our chops in different ways. The first thing is the School of Skull and Genius, which we've been working on since the middle of last year, but we accelerated the launch plans and put it into alpha really early. It's an experimental learning community, a subscription platform where you get one deck from us a month and then expert interviews every week and then analysis and resources or directions to resources and commentary from me every week. We're thinking, how do we scale down the assets we take into a consultancy to use as the beginnings of a workshop for diagnosis, for disruption, blah, 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 and say, can we turn that into a thing people can understand? Or yes. Can we make it into a product people can buy at a very low price point, like 15, 25 bucks a month, and then try and sell it to agencies as well as a sort of corporate membership. Now, obviously, agencies don't have any money right now, but individuals are still trying to learn and feel connected, especially independent individuals. So that seems interesting. So that's one thing we're doing and did, and we're going to be doing that forever. It's definitely something we are building up more and more. I also love the fact that this insane period of time where, as you said, you are a global nomad, you live around the world, and the majority of your revenue is from international speaking engagements. For someone who's actively changed up their career so many times this is one of the first times I guess when it's happened to you really and it's not been through choice and yeah you've ended up doing stuff like launching a platform which you'll probably continue with which is quite a different business model a subscription approach and making an ad not something digital an actual ad with Dolly Parton last thing then if there are other people and there are other people who are finding themselves in a position now where they've been dealt a hand they weren't expecting. Careers on a trajectory or life's on a trajectory and then suddenly this year has been particularly disruptive. What advice do you have to help people start feeling maybe a bit more capable or just shake off the funk that people are finding themselves in and try and look ahead positively to rebuild something? I've been thinking about this a lot and I've been writing a little bit about it to try and get my thoughts in order. As I said, I did not deal with this well. And that meant was months of not dealing with the well. And it's only in the last probably four weeks that I feel interested in having conversations with people and able to work with a clear brain and that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying that I suddenly found a solution. I'm saying that I got better and now I'm thinking about what I should do to feel better and keep working. So part of my thinking was around this idea of motivation. I felt very unmotivated to do anything in the early part of quarantining. And the way I explain this to myself, and this happens a lot because... I tend to find myself explaining my psychology to myself through brand strategy. I know that sounds really sad. It's just the tools I use to think about things come from that. In motivational theory, there is essentially this idea that there are various versions of the self. There's the self that you experience, your life, the decisions you make. And there's a self you have in your head that is the idealized version of who you think you should and or could be. And there's the sort of societal version of that person 
that conforms to what you understand as the values and things of society. So in motivational theory, the perceived gap between what you do and what you think you should do creates motivation. But at the same time, if you perceive this gap as being too big, it demotivates, right? And I felt at the beginning, in a catastrophizing sense, I had begun to infinitely discount the future, strategically speaking. I had begun to consider a future that was so very different from the past that doing work in the medium term seemed irrelevant because there was no guarantee there would be advertising in 18 months or a functioning society, in my opinion. That was obviously not realistic. It was catastrophizing, but that was the way I got to. So the motivation thing is either motivating or demotivating based on the imagined delta between those two selves. But the delta is imaginary. And this is kind of where I got to more recently, which is trying to balance two modes of coping that I was thinking about a lot. So in the beginning of the pandemic, people started to separate out into performative, productive people and people who were struggling. My brother taught himself Python, <laughs> the coding language, whilst in quarantine with his kids. I oh. just did a lot of snacking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't teach myself Python. and I don't have two kids. And I was like, oh, I suck as a person. He's like a different kind of person. He's just much more driven in that way or whatever. So I was trying to manage the future and the medium term and the short term. And it occurred to me that I was discounting the long term infinitely and therefore couldn't work. And that that was a relevant issue for agencies and brands in general, where they can't make investment decisions when there's too much uncertainty down the pike because the discounting required to do so in economic and accounting terms is too high. Then there's two things, right? There's people who take the situation and think I am a work in progress and I will improve myself. This is a very American way of thinking about people and psychology. The idea that exercise requires constant maintenance and that more I exercise, the better my brain works and that you should be getting better and stronger and smarter and learning all the time. And that's all good, but it means you're never enough. So motivation comes from this sense that you are not enough. And then I go to yoga classes and in yoga classes, they say, you are enough. You are more than enough. And that comforts the shit out of me. And I'm like, oh, I felt like I've never been enough. And then I am enough already. And those two things didn't work for me. And so a lot of Eastern thinking, let's go back to Buddhism. The second noble truth of the Buddha is that attachment to desire is the root of all suffering. So attachment to the idea that the world should be different in some specific way that you want it to be is the cause of all your pain. Because essentially your brain is creating fictions on a constant basis. And we have different ways of thinking about the fictions. This is how it applies to advertising and everything else. Plans are fictions. No matter what the kind of plan is, it's always fictional and it never stops being fictional even when it becomes real. It's a prediction of the future, I guess, of what you want to come about. Yes, kind of. But if you attach yourself to that, the insight behind that, right, is that it will never come about. And if it did, it still wouldn't be satisfying. That's kind of the heart of this. If you attach yourself to trying to force reality into a set of fictions that you think you need to manifest to be happy, you'll never be happy because reality will not conform to your wishes. In some aspect, it will not. You can't be happy even if it was, because if you've been programmed to be in constant need of a future, if you're always self-improving, if you're a growth mindset, you're working towards a new state, you can never be in a present state in order to enjoy the achievements that you've made. This is a key part of the mindfulness insight that comes out of Alan Watts's kind of thinking. So here we have these two models. Self-improvement makes you improve, and I need to be exercising to be healthy, and I can't just stop that. And I accept that's true. At the same time, Life is a hoax in the sense that if you're constantly taught to be in need of a future, if you're trained that kindergarten is training for school and school is training for work and work is training for management and management is training for what? A midlife crisis. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. That's what happens. You get to the top and then you go, what's now? I'm only 40, 45. What happens the next decades of my work? Well, anyway, 
that decision is challenging. So that's one way of thinking about it. But to accept this is true will inherently make you unhappy for the rest of your life because you're always chasing the future. You can't enjoy the present if that's your mode of thinking. On the other hand, acceptance of what is is the only route to peace of mind in Eastern thinking, acceptance of what is. However, to accept what is, how one does then want to make changes about social injustice or one's own situation? How can one marry motivation with the inevitable acceptance of what is being the only route to not being miserable all of the time on the sort of hedonic treadmill of stupidity in life? I think about it all the time. My brain likes paradoxes. And it's like, you can't resolve this in a logical way. I couldn't resolve it. I think I have a solution that makes me feel like I'm getting close to an answer. And it comes from Taoism and emergent strategy. So I find these two things helpful, right? In Taoism, which I know nothing about except this one expression, the Tao never acts, but nothing remains undone. Now, in Taoism, which is basically Confucianism sort of differently skinned, there is an idea of the way. And the way, the Tao, is kind of the force of everything that makes things the way it is. And no matter what you do, you're going to be doing what the Tao wants, because that's how the universe unfolds. But the more closely you are aligned to what the Tao wants, the less discordant your experience of reality will be. The more harmony you'll feel, because the way the world works is right. Rather than, I wish that hadn't happened, you can't have that wish if everything that happens has to happen the way it happens, right? So... My thinking is then there must be a scope for action and intention and improvement within the overall acceptance. And I think emergent strategy is my way of thinking about this. Are you familiar with emergent strategy? It's a no, books and something. It's a new sort of newish strategy. Its assumption level is that plans are fictions, which is not their language, but how I think about it. And all plans will not work the way you think they will because change is an inevitable aspect of putting a plan into reality. This is very like the Gestalt approach to coaching which is basically that the solution will emerge, that just going through the act of exploring or discussing. So if you have like a team problem, just discussing that problem, you don't need to know exactly where it's going to go, but that a solution will emerge, that sort of emergent approach. So it's not a, I'm getting from A to B. Well, some combination of trying to be agile, but building it into the framework of thinking at the beginning by saying, we assume that everything will change, that our strategy will have to change at some point because context will change. And let's build in some scenarios or build in the insight. Then it's always going to change as things. So here's where I got to with those two pieces, right? I think you have to accept what is, otherwise your life is going to be terrible and frustrating. However, you have to do it every second, all the time on a continual basis forever. So you have to keep accepting it and it keeps changing and you have to keep re-accepting it. And that's why strategy is a constant process. Because you put in a plan, you put in the operational aspects of the plan, you execute something, then something happens and you should change it based on the changing of the world. That seems right. And it's why meditation is the work of a lifetime. Because every time you've achieved accepting what is, what is changes. And so you've got to do the work again of accepting that. They talk a lot in meditation about hold on and let go. Hold on, be present in the present moment and appreciate what's there but also let go of it. Don't grasp stuff too much. Don't hold on to it too tightly because it'll always change and don't grasp stuff in the future too much. There's an amazing guy called Michael. I never know how to say his name. I think it's Chaskalson, C-H-A-S-K-A-L-S-O-N. And he is an ex-Buddhist who talks to lots of businesses about the benefits of mindfulness in the work environment. And one of the things he always starts with is the concept of I'm okay, you're okay. So we're whole and complete. We're starting from a place where we're present and everything is okay. And then from that acceptance, you can then start to see if other things emerge. I love him. He's got loads of books out. He's brilliant. I think being trained in a sort of Western 
logical form of thinking makes these sort of things very hard for us because there is a sort of inherent deal in Western thought that logic requires, right? The principle of consistency requires things to either be or not be, but not both. You can't have things that are non-binary in logic, basically, right? If something exists, it exists. If it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. But there's no sense of things that could be both, which there are. In real life, being a human means managing paradoxes rather than trying to resolve them because they're not resolvable problems. They're paradoxes to be managed. They're things that are true. Both of them are true. And you have to manage that paradox. In Creepier, he says, hold on tightly, let go lightly. Or strong opinions loosely held. These are paradoxes. You want to do both. And to bring it back to country, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. That's the art. That's the human bit. We're going to have to end, Faris. I could talk forever and ever. All of those things you just said at the end there would also all be brilliant tattoos. Hold on on one hand and let go on the other, probably, as a daily reminder. You've been listening to The Rebuilders, hosted by me, Sarah, in conversation with Faris Jacob from Genius Steels huge thank you for listening and if you enjoyed today's episode please feel free to post it and to follow us on twitter and instagram join us again next wednesday for a brand new episode with filmmaker chris atkins talking about rebuilding his life after serving a prison sentence which he's actually just explored in his new book bit of a stretch <laughs>